Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 5. Mr. Smith Goes to Werowokomoko. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want the show to continue, then please support it. You can do this by subscribing to the membership feed at thehistoryofpodcast.com. Membership only costs $5 a month, and gives you access to two exclusive episodes per month. We're currently talking all about the Aztecs. Special thanks to our latest pioneer, listener Julie, and to all those people who have left iTunes reviews. Thank you. I couldn't do the show without you. Last time on A History of the United States. Captain John Smith had been captured by the Powhatan chief up in Chankanoff. Smith had saved himself some time by giving up and shouting off his compass, but this was not enough to prevent Smith from being tied to a tree as the Powhatans prepared to shoot. All seemed lost. But then Openchaukanoff held up the compass and the warriors put down their bows. Smith was then marched to Oropax, a town about six miles away. The villagers gawked at him and performed a celebratory dance. Smith was then taken to a house where he was given so much food that he thought they were fattening him up so that they could eat him. He was given his things back, including his compass, and he was even allowed to speak with Opinchankinov. They took great interest in each other, and Smith very soon realised why he had been spared. Opinchankinov was planning an attack on Jamestown, and wanted Smith to provide him with the information on how best to take it. In return, he wouldn't be killed. Smith pretended to accept the deal because, well, he didn't want to die, he would instead live and try and warn Jamestown of the trouble that was coming. What follows next is, well, a bit strange. Smith warned the Powhatans of the dangers of assaulting Jamestown and of the powers of English weaponry. Smith wanted to send a letter to Jamestown to let them know he was alive, and so three Powhatans travelled there and returned with goods Smith had requested. The Powhatans never launched the attack, and Smith was kept alive. That's what we know happened. But how did that happen? What were the reasons? Smith seemed to think that the Powhatans had no knowledge or understanding of writing, and therefore he assumed that the Powhatans assumed that either Smith could communicate through long distances, or had made the paper talk. Either way, he was magic. This then was what kept him alive. Meanwhile, his request for weaponry to give to the Powhatans was enough to convince them that attacking Jamestown was a bad idea. This was how Smith understood the situation, but it had several problems with it. If you'll allow me to become a grumpy historian for the moment, well, a grumpier historian anyway, one of my biggest pet peeves is the assumption of simplicity. So often, written accounts assume that they are far smarter than the people they are writing about, not in an arrogant way, although sometimes that, more that they don't allow the possibility of sophisticated thought by what they deem lesser civilizations. One of my huge criticisms with most scholarship on the fall of the Roman Empire is that they are dominated by assumed simplicity. They look for chaos in the fall of the Roman Empire, and so find it. 
They don't look for patterns or higher levels of thought, such as counter-logic. Now, I'm sure you're saying that this is all well and good, Jamie, but what does this have to do with John Smith? Well, he's working under the assumption of assumed simplicity. Smith didn't realise that the Powhatans had already had plenty of experience with the Europeans, and that it was very possible that Oppenchaukenhoff was Don Luis, who had spent time in Mexico City. At the very least, we can be reasonably confident that if he wasn't Don Luis, then Oppenchaukenhoff knew of Don Luis, and probably spoke with him. He would have known all about writing, So, just like when they tricked Newport into staying upriver for the first attack on Jamestown, the Powhatans were playing a game, just like Smith. The only question is, what were they doing, and why were they doing it? That is a question we simply don't know the answer to, but we can make some pretty good guesses. It could be they were using Smith to get some sort of ransom. This would explain why they sent men to Jamestown, They were seeing just how important Smith was. From what they brought back, from Jamestown, apparently he was valuable, worth keeping alive, and worth presenting to Wahon Sonnecock himself, which is what they did a few weeks later. He went to Werowocomoco, on the north side of the York River, 15 miles from Jamestown. The meeting was very ritualistic and ceremonial, no doubt intended to impress Smith. Indeed he was. Wahun Sonnecock welcomed Smith, and let him know that he would be freed in four days. He was interested by what Oppenshankenoff had told him, and wanted to know more. For instance, just why were the English there? Smith replied that they had been in a fight with the Spaniards, and fled into Chesapeake Bay. They then went upriver in order to find fresh water. They had encamped at Jamestown to make repairs while waiting for the return of Newport, who Smith described as his father. Not the most convincing explanation, but Wahon Sonnecock didn't ask too many questions about it. What he did do was ask Smith and the English to abandon Jamestown and resettle on the York River, where they would become part of his chieftain. Smith describes what happened next, in a scene which has since become legendary, describing himself in the third person. Two great stones were brought before Powhatan. Then, as many as could lay hands on him, dragged him to them, and thereupon ate his head, and being ready with their clubs to beat out his brains. Pocahontas, the king's dearest daughter, when no entreaty could prevail, got his head in her arms, and laid her own upon his to save him from death. End quote. Did this happen? No, probably not. James Horn, in his book, A Land As God Made It, Jamestown and the Birth of America, notes that Smith is our only source for the event, and that he was writing years after the fact. Not even considering the fact that Smith probably had a poor grasp of understanding of Powhatan rituals, he either accidentally or purposefully got it wrong. I mean, just think about it. Pocahontas, yes, that Pocahontas, was the daughter of Wahon Sonnecock, and was only 11 years old. While it makes for a happy story about the power of love over violence, was she really going to risk her life and publicly humiliate her father for the sake of some stranger?
No, of course she wasn't. Horn finds far more likely the possibility that this was some sort of adoption ceremony involving a ritualistic dying and rebirth as an Anglo-Powhatan. Pocahontas was playing a role within the ceremony, and it would fit with Wahon Sonicock asking Smith and the other English to join his tribe. It seems likely that this approach was due to the rapidly declining numbers of the English. They weren't really much of a threat anymore, and having them as part of his empire would give him trading access to English goods. Two days later, there was another ceremony, in which Smith was made a son of Wahonsonicoc. He was given the name Nantaquud. Smith would be freed, and to confirm their friendship, he was to give Wahonsonicoc two guns and a grindstone. It is assumed that he accepted the terms. Smith never seriously considered Wahonsonicoc's offer, though. He was an Englishman and a gentleman, not some barbarian chief. With all his knowledge gained on this misadventure, Smith's position of preeminence in the colony would be confirmed. He returned to the fort and presented his guides with the cannons that Wahonsonicoc wanted. However, these weighed one and a half tons each. The Powhatans had no way of dragging them back. Smith showed off what they could do by firing some rocks at trees, which terrified the guides. Smith mollified them by giving them other gifts to take back to Wahonsonicoc. The reaction to Smith's return was mixed. The men were happy to see him, but the council wasn't. Archer was particularly upset. He had been promoted to the council in Smith's absence, and didn't welcome his return. Even before he was captured, Radcliffe and Martin weren't his greatest admirers. Archer blamed Smith for the deaths of Robinson and Emery. Radcliffe, as president, condemned Smith to death by hanging. You'll recall the double insult of this. A gentleman, such as Smith, should have been shot, not hung. It was January 2nd that Smith returned, and things had been getting ever worse in Jamestown. Radcliffe, Archer, and the other gentlemen were planning to abandon the colony. They would flee on the one ship they had left, the Discovery, which was only a small 20-ton pinnance. On it, they would travel either to Newfoundland or England, leaving Reverend Hunt and the surgeon, Thomas Watson, in charge. But, as had happened for the third time now in our short narrative, this was not Smith's time to die. By pure chance this day, January 2nd, 1608, was the day that Newport returned to Jamestown. The charges against Smith were dropped in the celebrations. There is a brilliant passage by Horn, which I'm just going to quote, since I don't think I could put it better myself. We do not know what Newport's reactions were upon his return to Jamestown. When he left in the summer, only a couple men had been lost, and the settlement appeared to be in relatively good shape. Six months later, nearly two-thirds of the men were dead. The deposed president of the council was under close arrest, one member of the council had been shot, another was about to be hanged. The leading gentry had decided to desert the colony, and nothing of value had been discovered or produced. End quote. Newport wasn't going to wallow in self-pity, though. 
he wouldn't despair about what had happened to the colony. He was going to fix things. He had with him a hundred men or so, of which we have 73 listed individuals, including 33 gentlemen, 21 labourers, 6 tailors, 2 apothecaries, 2 refiners, 2 goldsmiths, a gunsmith, a perfumer, a blacksmith, and a tobacco pipe maker. For all his new optimism, there would be another setback for Jamestown a few days later. There was a fire. Fires are never nice, but in a settlement made entirely of timber, they could do an awful lot of damage. All but three of the buildings were destroyed. The church was burnt, the library, the storehouse, and the fortifications. All that most men were left with were the clothes on their backs. Fires are not uncommon in structures made of wood when there are open flames about, but I will mention that there was, and indeed still is, some suspicion about whether the Spanish had anything to do with it. It was a particularly harmful blow for Reverend Hunt, who would die in the following Great Frost. As we saw when dealing with St. George's Fort, 1606-08 was a cold winter. The English were desperate. All of a sudden, they were reliant on the power tan again. Wahun Sonnecock sent food to Jamestown a couple of times a week. Well, more accurately, they sent food to Smith and Newport. These were the only two they considered leaders, and Newport only because of what Smith had told them about him. What happened next was Jamestown was left in the hands of Martin and Radcliffe, while Smith and Newport travelled to Werewakamoko with a guard of 30 or 40. The reception was warm and friendly. There was another ceremony, which confirmed the English as Powhatans, and Smith was confirmed as a Werowance, which translates as something like leader. It was used to describe the level below the chief. Once negotiations between Newport and Wahunsonacock began, the chieftain demanded to see the English goods before deciding how much food he would give. Smith advised Newport against this, recognising it as a trick to lower the amount of food they would give. Newport agreed to it, and, as Smith was expecting, less corn was given. He was furious. While I've criticised Smith for not understanding the Powhatans, he did understand them far better than his contemporaries. This act greatly weakened the diplomatic stock of the colonists, since they had been tricked. Newport was concerned primarily with the immediate problems facing Jamestown, but Smith was concerned about long-term trade deals, so perhaps Newport was taking a risk to secure the colony's future. They returned in early March with enough food to see the colony into spring. This was a bad time for the colonists. There was little food, and the men were being put to use to find gold. While Smith was just as interested in gold as the next person, he wanted men to be put to a more productive use than finding gold. Newport set sail back to England on April 10th with Archer, Wingfield, and a powhatan who had been sent to England by Wahunsonacock, named Namontak. Since the council was now getting pretty small, it was down to just Smith, Radcliffe, and Martin, one of the new arrivals, Matthew Scrivener, was added and Smith began doing the real work of repairing the fort. While he was doing this, he had a problem with Native Americans sneaking into the fort 
and stealing things. Eventually, some were captured, and they revealed information that Wahun Sonokok really hated the English. And his show of friendship was just that. A show. He planned to lure Newport into a trap when he returned, and launch a general attack on Jamestown. Smith was troubled by this information, and set about improving the fortifications. Another ship soon arrived. Newport had set out with Captain Francis Nelson in the Phoenix, but Nelson had gotten lost in bad weather, and so made it to Jamestown late. They shared resources, and the colony's strength was raised to about 150. At the beginning of June, he set off back to London with Martin, who was rather ill. It would be a while before Newport returned, so Smith set off to explore the country. I won't include a list of all the rivers he went down, but there was one incident of note when Smith's party was attacked by a group of Powhatans. The English easily forced them back with their muskets, but from them Smith learnt that they had been ordered to attack by Wahunsonokok, and that he had been egged on by Radcliffe. Smith returned on July the 21st with knowledge of the local area, as well as furs, fish, and fruits. He returned to found Jamestown on the verge of mutiny. Radcliffe had become deeply unpopular while Smith was away. Apparently, he forced the men to work, building him a palace in the woods, which is really odd on just about every level. As second-in-command, they asked Smith to depose Radcliffe, which he seems to have done, making himself the third president of Jamestown. This forms a good point to end things for this week. If you enjoy the show and wish to support it, you can subscribe to the members feed located at thehistoryofpodcast.com. You can like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and follow me on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. If you have any questions, just send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 